Genesis again. It's been a little while. Genesis 21, uh, picking up where we left off. And uh, we are nearing the end of the Abraham story, and we're nearing halfway point. It's only been like three years. So um, by the time the tribulation's over with, Danny, <laughs> we'll be done with Genesis, moving on to Exodus. Um, but we want to look at first eight verse. Really, the break off would probably be verse seven. Verse eight is sort of a bridge between the birth of Isaac and then what happens. It gets pretty rough after Isaac is born, and we'll take the time next week to look at that. So let's read verses one to eight of Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. As God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. He said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Well, I, I think right away, the main message of this passage is, is pretty easy to figure out, right? It's, it's about God fulfilling promise. Remember, the, the great promise of Genesis 12 is lineage and land and legacy, right? And, and here, the fulfillment of lineage that... Uh, <laughs> boy, that was a handsome voice I just heard there. Reminds me, this is... This is that has nothing to do with this, so I'm going to blame Don. I went to the funeral last Wednesday, so thanks, Don, for teaching for me last Wednesday. Uh, my great-aunt died, and uh, uh, another one of my great-aunts was there. I, I rarely see the side of the family. And uh, she pulled my mother aside at the funeral and said that I look like my grandfather, who died when I was a freshman. And I jokingly said, you mean Paul Paul was, that, was this handsome back in the day? And she said, well, May did. May's her sister, my grandmother. And I just thought that was hilarious, right? So she, she's not going to say he was a handsome guy or that I'm handsome, but that one woman in the world thought that Paul Paul was an attractive guy. So <laughs> she's like, you know, you know, maybe you'll get lucky, little fella, and someone will find you handsome. All right, anyways, uh, uh, so it's really about God fulfilling his, his, his promise. And so we've really had, what, nine, ten chapters of anticipating this? It goes all the way back to chapter 12, and the story has been a prolonged unfolding of this promise. It's sort of like um, David being chased down, uh, that, that he's being hunted down by Saul. When you go through uh, those narrative units slowly, it's, it's painstaking, isn't it? You're thinking, for goodness sakes, let something happen. They need to meet out in the street and just work it out, you know, have a duel or something. Um, I doubt we'll get to it this year, but next year, Lord willing, if we return to 2 Samuel, we'll see something similar in the David narrative with Absalom, his son. Uh, for several chapters, you get the rebellion of David's son, uh, who tries to overthrow him. Uh, and it's just one story after another that just continues that. And that's what the story of Abraham has been. He's done everything he can to keep this day from happening. Uh, remember that he, he nearly gave... Um, everything away to his was it nephew or his servants or something like that uh, Eleazar I believe is his name and not to mention the part with uh, Hagar but it's finally arrived and we, we want to start here right away that Yahweh the Lord uh, visited that's a it's an interesting word isn't it because it doesn't make any sense 
God comes knocking on the door, boom, she's pregnant, right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, so why this verb visited? Um, well, it's, it's because there's, there's a lot of theology going, going on here. The, the word can, can mean, um, it's, it, it can describe either a friendly or hostile, uh, if you will, visitation. You know, you, you can show up ready to throw down, and that would be a visit. Um, in fact, I think that's usually how my parents used the, the verb growing up, right? Um, do I need to come to your school and make a visit, right? And they would. My dad worked right next to the school, uh, spanked my brother in the principal's office, dragged him to his teacher's room, made him publicly apologize in front of everyone. The principal threatened to have him arrested. Dad then went back to work, called my mother and said, don't worry about bailing me out. Right? I'm going down, you know. And, and he explained what happened. And mom's like, all right, yeah, yeah. If, 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 I, if, 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 if you were in Frankfurt and I was anointed, I would have done it. Right? <laughs> yeah, and of course he, he wasn't arrested because um, that would have been an even better story. But, um, um, but, but more than that, if, by analogy, the, the term can mean an overseer, uh, someone who's in charge, someone who takes care of someone. Let me give you an example of this in Genesis. Uh, Joseph found favor in his sight and uh, uh, attended him, and he made him an overseer. It's either this word or this word. Uh, that's what I get for not put in italics. But you, you can see it's, 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 it's not that Joseph visited him, but he, 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 he had an overseer in charge of, of, of responsibility. Now, what is important is that this word is often used to describe God um, and his divine intervention, particularly in important moments in, in Israel's history. Um, for example, in Genesis 50, uh, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. This is in reference to the Exodus. And so Genesis ends with anticipation that Israel will come out of Egypt to the promised land in, in fulfillment of, of Abraham, but it's going to take a lot of work. God is going to do something incredible. And the verb is the same one used to describe God uh, 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 bringing conception to, to Sarah. God is going to visit. And so when you turn to the Exodus story, you see the same thing. Go and gather the elders of, of, of Israel together. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has appeared to me. Right? That word appeared is the word visited here. Same word. So if you did a word study, uh, Exodus 3.16 and Genesis 21.1, uh, that's the same exact word. Let me give you one more, uh, Genesis, or Exodus 4. The people believed when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel. Right? This is as the plagues are starting to, to unfold and Moses is, is saying, let, let my people go. So, so this word is used not just for the birth of the patriarch Isaac. Uh, it's used in the context of God redeeming his people out of Egypt. Which you remember, we, we saw this um, Sunday morning, that God uses the language of sonship there. And in fact, in chapter 4, he, he, he tells, Moses tells Pharaoh that, that Israel is God's firstborn. It's the language of sonship. Uh, let's look at a few other uh, where, where this word is important. Ruth chapter 1, the word is used to describe the end of the famine. You remember that uh, uh, Ruth's... Husband, brother-in-law, father-in-law, all them, they leave Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because of a famine. And the irony is there's, there's no bread in the house of bread. So they go to Moab. Well, there, they rose daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the fields of, of, of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. 
This is, this is clearly a, a divine in, in intervention. Let me give you just one more because it relates to this passage. 1 Samuel 2, the birth of Samuel. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. The boy grew in the presence of the Lord. By the way, Abraham and Sarah have other children. Um, uh, Abraham in particular. We'll, we'll cross that bridge. But, but you see here that, that God gives the gift of life. Um, and it may be at a corporate level with Israel. Uh, it may be uh, uh, through food and providing for that. Or a conception. Hannah was infertile, and God visits her, blesses her. This is a word uh, about divine intervention. Uh, but we should also pause and consider the implication of this. God visited Sarah. God visited Israel. God visited Hannah. God visited the Bethlehemites. Um, and later he will visit Moses, and he'll visit Israel in their slavery. Now, that probably isn't new news to you and me because we have a thing called the New Testament where God visited his people. He came down and dwelt among us. But, but you can see that this is setting the stage for a pattern that we take for granted in the New Testament. God coming down and doing mighty works. So remember that, and we, we may look at it later if we have time. The story of the birth of, of, of Jesus, the conception of Mary, and the conception of John the Baptist are purposely written to mirror the conception of Isaac here. So just as God comes down to visit Mary in the form of an angel, the language is very similar to God visiting Sarah here. That's not an accident. In fact, notice how, how weird verse 1 is. For, for you uh, grammar Nazis out there, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, the Lord did it to Sarah as he had promised, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. You see repetition there? It's as he had said, as he had spoken, that which he had spoken of, right? It's, it's, it's three times the same thing is said. You remember in Hebrew, there is no way to emphasize things outside of repetition. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It was evening, it was morning the first day. It was evening, the morning, the second day. And God saw it was good. And God said it was good. And God saw that it was very good. Repetition is the way in Hebrew you emphasize things. So, so right from the beginning, we are to see that, that Isaac's birth is a direct result of God's interaction, God, God's creative act. And, and this should fit again in the context of the creation mandate. Genesis 1 and 2 managed to be fruitful and multiply. But in Genesis 3, we get a curse. And the curse is, one, the pain of childbearing. Uh, so, so the thing that mothers want the most, it, it's very painful to, to go through. I've told you all the story before. Amanda just, just going through the labor process, and the second she held Elijah. I knew I was going to ask this question. Like, would you do all of that again? She's like, absolutely I would. And let's have another baby, right? I mean, just the second she holds that baby. But two seconds before that, right, <laughs> she, was, she had a knife yielding it at me, just, uh, you know, trying, trying to get me. But, and so we, we, we see this pull between the command to be fruitful and multiply, yet we live in a cursed earth where childbearing is painful and the reality of infertility. And infertility isn't, isn't against those who are unrighteous. Sarah isn't infertile because she's not a, a godly woman. Neither is that true for Hannah or Elizabeth or uh, Samson's parents or any of them. That's not it at all. Um, but what we do get in the Bible is that when we encounter an infertile couple and a child is born to them, it is clear God is doing something unique. 
And this is really the first clear example we get of this, Isaac. Um, later, you know, it, it'll be, uh, remember Joseph. Joseph's the firstborn of, of uh, Jacob's favorite wife who couldn't conceive. Um, what about Moses? It, it kind of works here in that Moses was preserved uh, through, through water. So similar story of Noah. Um, Samson, we've referenced Samuel. John the baptizer uh, infertile parents. Jesus. I mean, I think Jesus counts because I think Mary and Joseph were infertile by the fact they had never been together. I mean, I, 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 I went to public school and I was told that absence doesn't work, but I'm guessing that it works usually, okay? That is a joke. I, 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 there's going to be that one person. Do you hear a preacher say? Um, so, um, so infertility is, is a sad reality, and yet here God, God gives life. But the emphasis is for us to see that God fulfills his promises and is the sole creator. Notice here, it does not say Abraham knew his wife and she conceived. It doesn't say that. I have no doubt that Abraham did know his wife. And that may have been the means by which she conceived. But the narrator doesn't want to emphasize that. Now, we saw that with, uh, and I think I've got the example here, here in a minute. Um, Adam knew his wife and she bore Cain. Remember, she says, I've begotten a man, <laughs> a man-child. Uh, we call them teenagers now. And, um, um, and then the same thing with Abel, the same thing with Seth. Cain uh, knew his wife and begot Enoch. And we see it throughout Noah the same way. Uh, but when it comes to the birth of Isaac, it doesn't say Abraham knew his wife. Because the narrator, narrator wants you to see, uh, at least in the, in, in the narrative, that Isaac is created ex nihilo, that is, he's created out of nothing, to mirror the story of creation. I'm not saying he was created that way. I'm saying that in the narrative, we are to see that just as God spoke light into existence, so too he creates Isaac. That is a closed womb. That is a husband and wife who cannot conceive. The only way they will conceive is if God creates out of nothing. He turns water into wine, if you will which is actually the whole point of that, that story. So, um, thus her pregnancy is a sovereign gift of God. And, and it's easy to connect this to the New Testament, isn't it? The virgin birth, uh, you can apply that to salvation. It's how salvation works. It is, it is solely a sovereign gift of God. Let, let me give you two examples in, in, in the New Testament. Behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age. By the way, notice there, old age is emphasized two or three times in these first eight verses. It's, you know, it reminds us, remember, Abraham is in, is in his old age, and, and Sarah bore Abraham a child in his old age. And, and she says, who would have thought Sarah would be nursing a child in her old age? And so when we learn about Elizabeth, the emphasis is, in her old age, she's having children. That's not an accident. Uh, Luke knows his Bible. She's conceived a son, and this is the sixth month, uh, called Baron, for nothing will be impossible with God, right? That's the message of, of, of the birth of John the Baptist. Nothing is impossible with God. So what is the message of John the Baptist? Nothing is impossible. Not just regarding conception, but regarding salvation. How do I know this? Jesus, and this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the same verse. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this miracle is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Does that sound familiar? It's the message of the, of the conception of John the Baptist. So you see the connection between uh, conception with Isaac and John the Baptist and Samson and all them and salvation. The God who can open wounds opens hearts. 
Right? We are to see this connection throughout the Bible. And we've already said there in verse 2, in his old age, in case you forgot, this is a genuine miracle. The same miracle that opened the wombs of Sarah and Elizabeth and Hannah is the same miracle that opened the womb of Mary. Right? They, 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 it, they cannot conceive. Um, he, Abraham is 100 years old. Can, can you imagine? Um, see, it's, it's never too late to start to try new things. See? See? So some of you, Danny, it's not too late for you to be a Louisville fan. That's, that's what I'm really trying to say here. Not too late. Not too late. I see Susie still hasn't done the laundry like I asked. You were decked out in UK Blue Monday. Going to have to. I'll call Bryn. She, she's going to have to. It's awful. All right, so verse 3, we get uh, Isaac is named. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him. By the way, you see the unnecessary words there? Right, we already know they've had a son. It reminds me, uh, we, we really got to move. Um, yesterday at BTB, um, uh, Amanda was talking to the, the person that leads it. And, and I come, come out through the doors, and Amanda points at me and says, well, there he is, ask him. And she asked me a question, and I gave the answer to that question. Right, men? You understand this, right? So they were asked, where are you going? I answered that question. We are going to X. What she really wanted to know is, why are you going to X, and what do you hope to accomplish there? You know, something like that. She wants details. What I said was, we're going X. And then we stood there in this awkward silence, right? Because you women like to chat, and we men don't like to chat. And so we, we, we made a whole joke about, you know, they were just going and going and going and going. So everything I told her, my wife had already explained in about 40 more words, right? Well, when you see that in the Bible, it's, it's, it's not because the writer is chatty. It's because the writer, again, is wanting to emphasize things. In case you forgot, Abraham has had a son, right? This is a climatic moment in the, in the story of Abraham. And you notice his name is Isaac. Now, Isaac, uh, this is not the first time his name's given. Now, of the patriarchs, Isaac is, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac is the only one whom God does not change his name. Abram goes to Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Joseph gets a name change when he goes to Egypt, but that's not because God gave him that name. Isaac doesn't get a name change. Why? Because God named Isaac. You remember what the name means? It means laughter, right? And so we, we, we can go uh, all the way back to chapter 17, uh, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear a son. You should call his name Isaac. And you remember the context of this. Sarah laughs at the thought that she's going to have a baby. So God says, okay, we'll name him Laughter. All right. and, and so that's, that's where it comes from. Same thing in verse 21. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. And it's been, it's been less than a year. He was 99 there. He's 100, 100 years here. Now, there's a triple meaning with this name that I think is worth highlighting. The first is uh, he's named laughter because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the notion that Isaac was to be born or that they were to have a son. So here it is, uh, 1717, Abraham, notice this, Abraham first fell on his face and laughed. He said, I'm too old for this. No. Sarah laughed to herself. She said, I'm too old for this. So both of them 
laugh at this promise of, of God. And so God uh, says, okay, if you think it's funny, name him laughter. Now, you notice also in verse 6, if you skip down, there's, there's, there's another reason why he, he's named laughter. Uh, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, why use the word laugh there? What, what is she really saying? When people hear I had a baby, they will rejoice. But it purposely hey, emphasizes laughter. They will laugh over me. They will laugh with me. They, 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 they will rejoice and say, we can't believe what God has done. Isn't he awesome? But it wants to use the word laugh. So, so there's two reasons. One, um, to, to, to laugh at them, right? Man, we were such foolish kids when we were 87. You remember that? We were laughing, you know? And, and uh, so, so when they say Isaac, it's a reminder never to doubt the promises of God. But also it is for the community to rejoice over the birth of this promised son. So together we laugh, we rejoice. There's a third reason. Uh, actually, actually, before we get there, uh, uh, you know, bookmark this. Turn to Ruth 4. I think I can illustrate this. Ruth 4. Joshua judges Ruth. That's a sentence and a newsboy song. Ruth 4, 13 to 17. This is the birth of... Um, of their son. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. He went at her, and the Lord gave her a conception, she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a store of life, a nurture of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, father of David. Now, there's something odd here, isn't it? Naomi didn't give birth to this child, and she's the center of attention. Isn't that weird? I mean, come on, moms. Come on. It's just between us girls. Your first child and your mother-in-law gets all the attention? It's, 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 it's something's off about it. That ain't gonna fly. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Excuse me, first pictures are with me, okay, right? You know, uh, but, but, but what is it that you see here? Naomi changed her name to Mara in Ruth 1, name, meaning bitter. The birth of a child now is a corporate event of celebration and rejoicing. It's laughter. So, so you get the same thing going here. Now, Naomi's been the main character from the beginning to end. And so the birth of Obed is a great promise of, of restoration and, and redemption. Same thing, though. Right? The birth of a child is a cause of celebration, unless you live in a major city of the United States of America. Um, but for the rest of us, it is, it is a cause of, of celebration. One other reason why he is named laughter, it's at the beginning of verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Now, that one, on one end means she's happy now. She's got a baby, right? I mean, look, look, every husband can say the woman I married prior to having kids is not the same woman I married the second she 
knew she was pregnant, right? I mean, it, it is two very different women. I will still remember working on homework right, in our little two-bedroom apartment. The kitchen was the size of this podium. And uh, literally all of our utensils, cooking and eating utensils, were in one little drawer. So when you put your hand in, right, you didn't know if you were going to uh, grab the uh, uh, steak knife with the razor edge, you know, and, and lose that arm, or if you're going to grab a spoon. Right. You just didn't know, you know, but you live you were living on a prayer and singing Bon Jovi while you're doing it. I mean, it was it was it was it was a small place. I remember I'm just minding my own business and working on homework. And Amanda comes up, you know how small she is. And she comes up. She goes, you think you can tell I'm pregnant yet? Every day she's doing this, just looking in the mirror. Like, you, you would have never have done that when, when we were dating. Never. Right? So, so here's the laughter. But the real thing when you see here is that in the end, God is the one getting the last laugh. God is the one laughing here. You thought I couldn't do it, but look there, you, you, have, had, you have had a baby. Well, in verse 4 is the circumcision. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Uh, now, uh, circumcision um, here. It's not the first time it shows up in Genesis. That goes back to chapter 17, as we'll see. Uh, but Isaac is the first child at eight days old that is circumcised in the Bible. Uh, Ishmael was about 13 years old, because Abraham did it as, as an adult, um, and then everyone in, in his household. Now, this is an essential ritualistic act in the Old Testament. And it starts with Abraham. It starts in chapter 17. Remember, it was a sign of the covenant. Uh, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me, you, and your offspring. Now, we'll get to this in a minute. Notice there, God says, do it to your offspring, and his wife isn't pregnant. Right? It is a big part of the story we talked about in chapter 17. Uh, so, he who is eight days old. So, when Jesus goes to get circumcised in Luke 2, he is eight days old. Right? This is, this is a, a central uh, ritual in Jewish religion to, to this day. Now, 21st century American evangelicals find this one to be one of the weirdest things about the Bible. I know you can't say that out loud because you'll be judged by the other Christians, but let's be honest, this is a weird act. It is, it is odd to, to us. Um, I want to go back to some of the things we said about chapter 17, but, but I don't think there's an, it's an accident that the act is associated with reproduction. Right, is being cut is related to reproduction. And you remember that the seed and the serpent narrative. So blood is spilt in relation to reproduction. I don't think that's an accident. Um, but let me give just, just a few thoughts about circumcision. These are old. We're not going to look at all the ones that we did in chapter 17. We went on a whole rant about baptism and particularly infant baptism. We won't do that. First of all, notice this act of faith. We've, we've already talked about this. Um, Abraham promises to circumcise his offspring, seed, same word, Genesis 3.15, even though his wife isn't pregnant. Uh, so it's an act of faith, right? So, so when circumcising your son, you, you, you are saying in the Jewish religion, his son will do the same. It's an act of faith that God will give life to his people. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sign, right? And so you get in 17.11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a reminder that we are covenantal people. That God has made a covenant with us. Now, our covenant is found in the resurrection of Christ. 
So the, 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 the personal medical decisions parents make regarding their sons is between them and their doctor, right? I'm not the government, so I don't care what you do. But back then, it was the sign of the covenant. You knew you were part of the Jewish uh, faith by this sign, right? Um, thirdly, uh, it is a symbol for cutting. Circumcision means to cut or to cut down or even to destroy. Let, let me give you two examples here. Uh, Psalm 58, let them melt away as waters which run continually. When he bendeth, as King James, obviously, his bow to shoot his arrows, let them be as cut in pieces. The word there is circumcised. It just means cut. Uh, All nations encompassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I circumcise them. Will I cut them off? Will I destroy them? So it's it's a generic word that can have a specific meaning. Um, So symbolically, by this act, Abraham and their descendants are being cut off from among the nations. If you read uh, 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 like the Roman times with with the Jews, um, when they would have uh, they would have public baths. And so as a result, you could tell who was a Jew and who wasn't a Jew. And this is why in the New Testament, there were two types of Jewish converts, Greek converts. There were the proselytes and the God-fearers. Proselytes were those who were sensitive to the Jewish religion and worshipped the Jewish God. But that's probably where they stopped. They wouldn't do the dietary laws, and they certainly wouldn't do circumcision. God-fearers, we meet both of them in the New Testament, are those who go all the way. Because in Roman society, circumcision was a symbol of shame. You were one of those Jews that causes all those problems. So it, it's, it's, it's always been a sign of, of being separated from the, uh, the rest of the nations as God's chosen people. Um, uh, oh, uh, the, the cutoff part, it's made very clear in chapter 17. Uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be circumcised from his people. He shall be cut off from his people. The wordplay is, is very clear. Fourthly, circumcision is not salvation. Uh, Abraham had already been declared righteous by the time circumcision is brought in. This is Paul's point in Romans 4. We, we looked at, back at it when we were in chapter 7. But Paul makes a big deal of this. God declares Abraham righteous because he believed, not because he was circumcised. So circumcision is, is a picture of grace, not the means of grace. And the way to illustrate this is, is the wedding ring, right? Um, the, the wedding ring did not make me love my wife. It is a symbol of my love for my wife and my exclusive love for my wife. So, you know, putting a ring on your finger doesn't mean uh, necessarily that, that uh, now you can love someone, right? No, no, the, the, the love comes first. So too, grace precedes uh, these, these things. Now, this, of course, creates a problem in the New Testament. In Acts 15, uh, the Judaizers insist the Greeks must be circumcised. Um, and so they, they have a whole whole debate about that. Um, but the Bible is pretty clear. There's a lot of people who are circumcised who were still lost. And there's a lot of people who weren't circumcised who were saved. All right, so it doesn't save. Uh, I think, uh, so just two more. Fifthly, circumcision is a matter of the heart. I, this, is, this is a major theme of the Bible, Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah. 
happiness of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Right? So, so to circumcise your hearts is, is to cut off the evil of, of, of your heart and of your deeds. Right? But he uses that picture of circumcision, the cutting off. You've probably heard me say, you know, we, you need to crucify that. It's the same sort of thing, right? Because we don't do circumcision. We, we look at the cross. This is used in the New Testament. Uh, no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but, but it's inwardly. Um, uh, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Uh, Galatians 5, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. Why? You don't need Jesus. You've got circumcision. Right? This is really the problem of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church says Jesus will get you this far, but the Pope will have to get you the rest of the way. That, that's, that's a real problem. Um, uh, Galatians 6, neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation, a circumcised heart. Philippians 3, we are the circumcision who worship God by spirit to the glory of, of Christ and not the flesh. Colossians 2, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by cutting off, by putting off the body. All right, so... Um, so real circumcision is a matter of the heart, not of the flesh. Finally, circumcision points us to, to the gospel. Um, think about it. Instead of circumcision, God could have ordered everyone get a tattoo, which would have been very common in the ancient world. Right? I mean, this, this is actually why tattoos in Leviticus are condemned. And, and my father can't seem to understand that. He thinks any tattoo, you, 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 it's the mark of the beast, Right? Uh, is it dad? I get it. There's a whole context there, right? Um, it is gross and it is bloody. And I think that is the point of circumcision because only by this gross bloody symbol can one be drawn into covenant with God. Look at Colossians 2, 11. In him, like we just read this, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, meaning that in Christ you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. So on the cross, Jesus experienced the curse of the covenant. And the curse of the covenant is to be cut off. Jesus becomes cut off so that we can be grafted in. He is circumcised so that we can be brought into the covenants. Um, all right, well... Um, notice there, verse 7. Um, Who would have said, Sarah says, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, right? You, 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 can, you can see the smile on her face, right? She, she's just overwhelmed with joy. She's not only conceived, but she has given birth. Uh, this is a question of astonishment. She recognizes this is a genuine miracle. You remember, in the narrative, it does not say Abraham knew his wife. Now, again, I think he did, okay? But... Um, the narrator doesn't want to emphasize that. Um, and let me also add, this illustrates, the ancient Near Eastern world were not easily prone to believe in miracles. This is, this is chronological snobbery on our part. We think, well, we are, we are enlightened. We know miracles can happen. And we read of miracles in, 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 in the old world, and we think, see, they would believe anything. But what is Sarah saying here? This does not happen. They weren't ignorant. They knew that men who are 100 years old and women who are pushing 100 herself don't have children. Right? You don't need a degree from Harvard in order to understand that. 
So she's amazed. Look, I've given birth. You can run all the tests you can, but I can tell you that is not natural. This is a, a gift of God. In fact, I think I can prove that to you. There's a word there I would have never noticed had it not been for commentators who understand Hebrew a million times better than I do. Notice the language, she said. Now, how many times do you think the word said is in the Old Testament? Ten million? Give or take ten, right? Uh, in fact, if the program I use, they'll give you like a hundred options on the first page, and then you have to go to the next. So if you take the word said, uh, it, you barely get out of like chapter nine or ten of Genesis, right? It's, it's just, the word said is used all the time in narrative, obviously, but not this word said. This is not the same word as Bob said to Tim, let's go outside and play baseball. It's not the same Hebrew word. It's a very unique Hebrew word. It's only used roughly a handful of times. And it's almost always used in the context of poetry or Proverbs, except for one place, and it's right here. This is the only time this word said, this, this way of saying the word said, is used in narrative. Let me see if I, if I, if I can prove it to you. Uh, Job 8, how long will you say these things? Uh, just Job 8 is poetry. That's not the same word as said. It's, it's, a, it's a different Hebrew word. It's translated the same in English, but it's a different Hebrew word. Job 33, again, more poetry. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak. Sincerely. Psalm 106, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? Uh, it's, it's, it's the word said, but it's not the same one typically used in narrative. Now, why is this important? I do think scholars might be right in that if, if this word, and there's like one or two examples in Proverbs, maybe just one, so there's not, it's not used very often in the Old Testament. This word is almost always in the context of poetry, which suggests what Sarah does holding her baby, she writes a song. And it's a song about the promises of God. Now, moms, does that make sense? My wife suddenly became a songwriter when she became a mother. In fact, her and Evangel, I believe, for years, every night, had this routine that was ridiculous. I just, like, when I was growing up, dad would come in, he'd kiss us on the head, he'd rub our heads, go to bed, and he'd walk out and turn the light off, and that was it. Mom would come in, kiss us on the heads, say goodnight, kids, and walk out the door. And in 30 seconds, time to go to bed. That was our routine. Amanda, on the other hand, I don't know how her parents did it. They had a song, right? And, and they wrote this song, and the two of them would sing this song, and, and they would snuggle and, and rock and do all this sort of stuff. It's like a 20, 30-minute routine. I mean, it's it, it just, you want to know how I finished seminary? I, I, I did it by waiting for my wife to come to bed. Right? I mean, it's just crazy. And, and well, moms, that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes complete sense that she would, she would write this song. Now, now, notice there, the consonants for the word said here. Remember, in Hebrew, there's no vowels, right, which makes things a lot of fun and a pain for Hebrew students. There's no vowels. We, we added vowels later. They're little symbols. They look like little T's and dots and all this. Um, so it's great for, for if, if you can read Braille. Um, but, but there's no vowels, only consonants. The consonants of this word said 
is the same consonants for the word circumcise. That blow your mind? Think about it. Abraham is called, Abraham circumcises with a knife because of the promises and the covenant of God. Sarah circumcises with a song because of the promises of God. Because to circumcise a son is not to say God has blessed me with a child, but he will bless my son with a child. It's an act of faith. And what is she she's saying? Who would have believed? She's singing this. Who would have believed that Sarah would nurse a child? That's good stuff. That gets me excited. Uh, I have borne him a son. Now, again, that's weird language, isn't it? But it's, to me, and I could be wrong here, it's eerily similar to, to Genesis 4. Remember what, what Eve said? I have gotten a man, <laughs> right? But you remember the context of this verse. God had just promised that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And they are, they are camping outside the gate of Eden. The serpent is right there. And her firstborn son, she believes, is the promised Messiah. I have gotten not a son, she says, I've gotten a man. And what happens to this man? He becomes a type of serpent. But what, is, what, is, what does Sarah do here? She says, I have born Abraham a son. What a gift, offspring, seed. Well, real quickly, verse 8. Again, we'll come back to verse 8 next week when we look at the, the um, Sarah and Hagar aren't going to get along now. You do not need to read the rest of this passage to know what happens in the rest of this passage. Ladies, can you guess why Hagar and Sarah are not getting along? I'll give you a hint. Two boys got the same daddy, different mamas. Okay? That's going to create problems. Okay? It's going to become daytime TV. Are those shows still around? Daytime talk shows where they're just... Some of us work for a living, and so, I, I, you know, I have to... I don't, know about, I don't know if you state workers actually work or not, so I don't, I don't know if you, if you keep up with it or not. Um, <laughs> I made that joke to Jason because, you know, he couldn't go to work yesterday. He says, oh, so you're back to being a state employee, not a state worker, right? Because that's his joke, right? All right, you don't care. Um, so she, he, she weans him, uh, and they throw this, this big party. Now, remember that mortality rates in the ancient Near Eastern world among infants was very, very high. So you would wean children longer than, than you would now, right? And, and there's evidence in the Bible it could last to three years or longer. Let, let me give you just two examples. We don't need to explore this. Um, Samuel is weaned uh, for three years more. Notice um, they bring a three-year-old bull. The, the, the presumption there is that the bull was born when Samuel was. Uh, uh, this is two Maccabees. This is not in your Bible. Stop looking for it, and it doesn't belong in your Bible. If you're a Catholic here, we'd love to have you here. Let me tell you about the finished work of Christ upon the cross, but we need to uh, cut out a few books of your Bible, okay? Um, Second Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha. So I'm quoting it to give you a historical document here. But you'll notice there, um, uh, my womb for nine months and nursed you for three years. Right, and and the reason is is again likely because of uh, mortality rates. Uh, mothers become very protective, right? Now, some of you all know of mothers who gave birth during COVID. Were they more protective or less protective of their infant child during COVID? More, as they should be, right? I, I'm telling you, if if we had a child during COVID, 
you, I would have preached through a screen, <laughs> and, and as probably still would have to do it, right? Yeah, my baby ain't going to get hurt, Amanda would say, right? And, and she, she would be wrong in doing that. But you notice here that, that we have birthdays because we, we sort of take surviving infancy for granted. They have a celebration for surviving uh, nursing. And so he's roughly three, give or take, um, and they celebrate. Um, but notice the language there, verse 8. The child grew. Does anyone have a different word there for grew? I suspect you don't, but maybe maybe one will get it right. The child grew. Everyone's got grew? The word there is great. It's the same word used later in the verse. The child became great, and Abraham threw a great feast. It's the same word. It's repetition in the Hebrew. Why? To emphasize God has kept his promise, and the child is growing, and God will keep his promise. Remember that because in the next chapter, God gives Abraham the order, grab a knife, take your son to the top of a mountain, and run the knife through his heart. Isaac was great, and Abraham threw him a great celebration. All right? But we translate it grew because that's, that's better English. And that, that's, that's the idea. But, but you can see there's a subtleness there in the Hebrew that's, that's quite good. All right. So, again, what is the gospel connection? We mentioned earlier. It is the connection between the unique sovereign work in conception as a picture of the unique sovereign work of Christ upon the cross. The God who gives life to the infertile is the God who gives life to the cold-hearted and the sinner. That's the gospel connection. And we've, we've seen that. All right. Anything we need to... We've missed? Danny, Danny, is there anything we're missing? All right. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Isaac's born. Finally, we've, we've reached it.